What is going on? So glad that you could join us for another weekend. Um, this is week four of our forgiveness series. And this week, Landon Myers will be teaching on loving others. So without further ado, here's Landon Myers. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in Colossians chapter three for uh, our time this morning. If you're uh, with us for the first time today, we are on week four of a five-week practice, is what we call it, on the topic of forgiveness. We take seriously this idea of not just knowing Jesus, but as we know Jesus and are presented with who he is, practicing the way of Jesus. And one component of the way of Jesus is forgiveness. And so we're in the the midst of this practice. We have groups all over the greater Prescott area actually practicing forgiveness together because it's not something that comes naturally. And so over the past few weeks, we've talked about what, what forgiveness actually is, and we've defined it. We've talked about how God forgives us, and more importantly, why God forgives us, because he is a God that is love. It has nothing to do with the good you've done and whether or not it outweighs the bad you've done, he forgives because he is love, because he delights in you, because he made you. Last week we read, it felt like half the Bible, it's actually just 13 chapters of uh, Genesis and looking at the story of Joseph. And so this direct and, and personal type of forgiveness from Joseph to his brothers. And this week we're going to continue on that topic of us forgiving others Except instead of it being on the direct and personal side, we're going to talk about the indirect and and what I might define as cultural forgiveness. What is the call of Jesus to forgive others in the midst of our culture? When, When you think of our American culture, we'll call it, I highly doubt that the first thing that comes to mind is how kind and considerate and forgiving we are culturally. That's just not who we are. We're a culture, and Christians and not all kinds of political spheres and ideologies, we are a culture filled with hate and animosity, with holding on to grudges, and and beyond holding on to grudges, seeking out grudges to find, and we will search deep into your past to find whatever we possibly can to bury you with, or ruin your business, or whatever it might be. But we are a culture filled with a desire to harm those who have harmed us, to seek revenge. In many ways, our culture lives out the opposite of what forgiveness is, of of what the way of Jesus is. Throughout uh, the the Gospels, especially in, in what we sometimes call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this statement. He'll use it six times in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he talks about marriage and sexuality and divorce and legal issues and the poor everything, basically life. And here's what he's doing. He's commenting on culture. He's saying, here's what you've been taught culturally. You've been taught to do this or to think that. But I say to you, that is the cultural way. Here's the way of Jesus, and it is a better way. And that's not a knock on culture. Culture, in many ways, is neutral. There's godly, good, beautiful things in our culture. There's also sinful, harmful, 
death-causing, broken things in our culture. Jesus analyzes that. And he says to, to those following, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, here's another way. I, I want to read a couple of those, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We read this. Jesus speaking says, you have, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. He continues, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense to us. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? It's nothing special, nothing significant, nothing noteworthy about that. Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's got to be one of Jesus' easiest teachings. I don't think any of us will have trouble with that. That's not our culture. That stood out in the midst of Jesus' culture, and that stands out just as much, if not more, in ours. It's interesting that Jesus says, what are you doing out of the ordinary? I think it's important for us to note that this is not a call to just be constantly abused. It's not what Jesus is saying here. This isn't a call to not ever protect yourself or your family, but it is a call to an absurd, outrageous type of love to this, this forgiveness that, that not only does not make sense to our culture, but that as people begin to forgive in the midst of a culture that looks nothing like forgiveness, that, that preaches, you've heard it said, our culture says never forgive. In fact, ruin anyone that's done anything to you. In the midst of that, Jesus says, stand out. Look different. Do something different that's going to look like a flower in the midst of a dead and decaying field. Because by the way you love others, the world will know me. Tim Keller, reflecting on our culture and this call to love, uh, frames this for us in a helpful way. He says this, Loving your neighbor is easiest when there's very little difference. Loving your neighbor is easiest when there are no contentious issues between you. Loving your neighbor is easiest when their lifestyle matches yours. Loving your neighbor is easiest when they believe like you do, vote like you do, shop where you do, have the same economic status you do, and send their children to the same schools you do. The smaller the gap between you, the easier the bridge is to build. The biggest need for bridge building, however, is where the gap is the biggest, where you don't understand the other person, or when you feel the other person might be your opponent or is even someone who hates you. And if you are awake in the midst of our culture, you've experienced that. Yet the degree of difficulty in loving our neighbor does not excuse us 
from loving that neighbor. Paul instructed us in Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The call of bridge building is to imitate the love of Christ. We model that love when we extend ourselves across differences for the sake of understanding the other. When we demonstrate hope, when we bestow respect or dignity, and when we pursue reconciliation. Jesus spanned chasms to reconcile me to God. So if I try to span chasms, I am closer to being the Christ imitator I want to be. Loved by God and loving others for God's sake. Think for just a moment of the picture we can provide for our culture when you live differently How different and ridiculous and loving and good and wholesome does forgiveness look in the midst of a culture filled with hate and animosity and the seeking of revenge from all sides? That's being a contrast people. I was having a conversation with my mom this week, and she framed framed this in such a beautiful way. I think Jesus has a vision for forgiveness where forgiveness becomes contagious. What if forgiveness became contagious in the church? What kind of impact can you see that having in your families, immediate and not, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, in our office places, in our grocery stores? If forgiveness became contagious, it would be spectacular. It would be noticed because it is so unique, and it's just not found. I love that picture. I think Jesus is calling us to promote a culture where forgiveness, not hate, where forgiveness, not animosity, where forgiveness, not holding on and seeking out revenge, becomes contagious. And we're going to spend time in Colossians 3 now because I think it helps us understand how to go about forgiving others. We'll begin in verse 12. We read this. Paul, also as a, as a side note, is just writing to a church. The Colossian church was not special. I graciously shared with the service before. They are just a group of messed up people like we are as a church. Nothing significant. They're just following Jesus. That's what a church is. And so Paul writes to a church, a group of normal people with broken and beautiful histories following Jesus together, and he says this. Therefore... Here's some lofty language. God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Depending on the the translation, that last word might be dearly loved or beloved. And this goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. How God forgives matters, but what matters most is why God forgives. And it's because he delights in you. It's because he made you. It's because he simply is a God that is love. He always has been and he always will be. And you don't have to to bridge that gap. He bridged it for you because he loves. And so Paul is writing to normal, sinful, messed up people like you and me. And he says, therefore, let me tell you who you are. You are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. That's the, the first key in this first line that we're reading in verse 12. The second is this. We read these crazy theological terms here. Therefore, God's chosen ones. We can get hung up on that really quick, depending on your, uh, your church or, or theological background. Depending on your translation, it might use the word elected or the elect. 
And often, when we, uh, we see this word in the scriptures, chosen or elected, the question that we begin to ask is who? Who is chosen? Who is elected? And we're really quick and really good at coming to that question. And the reason's pretty simple. It's because we're really selfish and self-absorbed. We ask who because we want to make sure that we are in that who circle and not in the other who circle. But I don't think that's the key question here. I think the key question is chosen or elected to what? And throughout the entirety of the scriptures from the beginning to the end, it's not talking about floating on a cloud and and having some weird kind of idea of peace and singing songs forever. What we're chosen to or elected to is a position. It is a job. As the church, we have been elected to be a light to the nations, to be a preview of his coming kingdom. Israel was called to this, chosen and elected first. God said, by the way you live, By the way, you experience my presence and then give it out, the world will know me. And then to the church, he gives the same job. That by the way, we love and live and have our being. By the way, we are human the way he's made us to be. The world will know him and the hope that alone is in his name. Restoration Church, or I should say as Restoration Church, we often talk about this in the context of being a preview. Just like a movie trailer. You see a certain movie trailer, a movie preview, and you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Or you see another and you go, that just looks ridiculous. Or you see another and you go, I can't wait to see that. Or maybe a different one you see and you go, I am going to make sure my children never, ever see that movie. And in all four of those categories, the church can be found. Every one of those. We, we don't get to choose whether or not we are a preview. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been chosen for this job, and sometimes you'll do it really well, and sometimes we are just appalling to the culture around us. Sometimes we look no different. But you have been chosen, holy, and loved. Notice, too, Paul, Paul didn't have like a, a printer or a copy machine when he wrote this letter. He wasn't able to, to print off a ton of copies to make sure every single individual in the Colossian church got one because he wasn't writing to individuals. They read this as a church out loud. This isn't a job for individuals. It's not a job for pastors or uh, church employees. It is an us job. It is a job for we as a people, as a family, united in our following of Jesus. And that's the only way it works. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and Loved. Be a display people, a contrast people, a people that look different in the midst of our community. I, I, I love the way that Michael Goheen frames what a contrast community looks like, the way that we can be a, a breath of, of fresh air or a, a sip of water after days of thirst in the desert. He, he lists these contrasts that we are to be as a church, and this will make us an effective preview, to be a community of depth, and a culture of superficiality, a community of cheerful seriousness, and a culture of triviality, a community committed to the important issues of our globe, and a culture often of apathy and indifference, a community of self-giving, and a culture of self-absorption, narcissism, and entitlement, a community of joyful purpose, and a culture amusing ourselves to death. A community of self-giving love 
in a world of selfishness and self-gratification. You start to see how these things look and feel different. They're a contrast because they're not what our culture is about. A community of wisdom and a world of proliferating knowledge and information technology. Siri can tell me anything I need to know, but she cannot help me live, no matter how hard I try to have her do that. A community of humility in a world of arrogant self-interest. A community of patience and a world of immediate gratification. A community of compassion and a world numbed by overexposure to violence and tragedy. A community that uses language positively in a world of destructive communication. A community of joy in a world dominated by a frantic and hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. A community of self-control and marital fidelity in in a world saturated by sex. A community of truth, kind humility and gentle boldness in a world of uncertainty and suspicion a community that knows God's presence in a secular world, a community of generosity and enough in a world of consumption, a community of forgiveness in a world of hatred, competition, violence, grudges, and revenge, a community of thankfulness in a world of entitlement, and a community of praise in a world of narcissism. I'll stop there. You get the idea. Those things look different in the midst of our culture. Those things are refreshing in the midst of a culture that has a lot of really great attributes, but also has a lot of wanting, lacking, broken attributes. And here's the thing. We don't get to pick and choose whether or not we're a part of culture. You just are. So we have to acknowledge that and work through it and continue in Colossians 12. Therefore... God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Before uh, Paul uses this put on language, he begins his discussion on putting on and putting off, beginning in verse 1. And again, Paul's not just talking about spiritual things. He's giving cultural commentary. I want to read beginning in verse 1. We'll see the, the same type of language. I'm actually going to skip to verse 5, if that's all right, Jackson. Paul says this, therefore, put to death what, what belongs to your worldly nature. Notice, Paul doesn't say, like, if there's something that belongs to your worldly nature. Again, you don't get to choose whether or not you swim, you breathe, you live in our cultural waters. You just do. And so there's things that we have been marinating in, cultural ways of life and values that you have, that I have, that we have to put off. We have to put to death. That's strong language. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. So that way, you have heard it said, but I say to you, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now you must also put away all the following. Okay, first we put to death. Now we put away anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Notice, those are all relational characteristics because we serve a God that is love, a relational God. So his commands are always tied to relationship. He continues, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarians, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Therefore, back to our verse 12, God's chosen ones, chosen for a job, elected for a position to be a preview. You are holy and dearly loved, put on. Sometimes I think we skip the put to death and the put off, and we jump to the put on. And you can, you can think about how absurd it would be to go home today and go to sleep in the clothes you're wearing and then wake up tomorrow and put new clean clothes over your dirty clothes and then to wake up the next day and add another layer and the next day add another layer, like, that would be ridiculous. And eventually the stink, for some of us more than others, of what is underneath would start to seep through what appears to be clean and the stench would just start to move out and be known. Often as Christians, we do this. We don't take time, this is why we have confession every week, to soak in what actually needs to be put to death. And and oftentimes it's not your fault. You are a part of a culture filled with sin and beauty. It's a distortion of God's good intent. But if we don't first put to death and then put off, remove what is of the world, the way of Jesus, you have heard that it was said, take revenge on everybody, and it's all about you. If we don't put that off before we put on Christ's character, that stench will seep through in time. So first we have to put off, but then put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We continue accepting one another and forgiving. This is interesting. There's a command to forgive here. It's all throughout the scriptures. But before we're called to forgive, we're called to put on these five characteristics. Heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I've been contemplating that this week, and I would, I would perhaps go so far as to say we are not capable of forgiving until we've internalized those characteristics. I don't know if it's possible to forgive if you don't have compassion. I don't know if it's possible to forgive if you're not filled with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Now, here's the challenging reality in that midst. I don't know about you, but I can't snap my finger and be like, it's going to be a great day. I'm going to be very gentle today, very kind. It doesn't work that way. In our forgiveness practice group this week, we were talking about this concept of blessing or using some harm or sin that has happened against you or to you to bless others and talking about ways that that can happen. And the most common answer was that, well, if you've been through something specific, when someone else goes through it, You can help support and coach and and be there empathetically for them. And that's true and that's good. And then someone brought up, what about actually seeking to bless the one that offended you? I'm like, that's crazy. I don't want to do that. That's a a different ballgame. That's a lot harder. And we started talking about that. And as we did, I, I started thinking, you know, here's the reality. And this is what I love about our God. He never wants us to pretend. Sometimes the best thing we can do, maybe the only thing we can do when it comes to forgiveness is to say, Spirit, I do not desire what is best for that person. I do not want anything good for them. But I actually somewhere like really deep, I don't know where, but somewhere, desire to desire what is good for them. But for clarity, I do not desire it now. Like I actually think that's one of the most impactful prayers we can have. Again, God isn't going to be surprised by that. Sometimes I go, I don't desire that, but I desire to desire what you want me to. 
I want to care about what you want me to care about. Now, here's the thing, and this is another interesting cultural tidbit, if you will. Our culture says, I love walking through an airport, and I just wander, and I go into bookstores. Do you know how many self-help books there are? It is mind-blowing. And do you know how little they work? That's why they keep selling, because you think it might make a difference, but it doesn't. And you know what's fascinating is Christianity, I think, I believe, is the only religion that is honest about that. It's the only religion, it's the only value system that says we can't help ourselves, only Jesus can. And so there's this moment where if we want to take practicing forgiveness seriously, we have to stop and go, Spirit, I can't make myself patient. In fact, I'm kind of the opposite. I can't make myself gentle. I can't make myself be compassionate. Will you do that for me? I desire to desire what you want. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgiveness starts with asking the Holy Spirit to provide those characteristics. We continue in verse 13, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity. What a beautiful picture that is. How unique. How much will that contrast our culture? That's not what we think about when we think about our culture If this type of forgiveness becomes contagious in our church, just our little church, people will notice and be drawn to Jesus. It just will happen because this is attractive. But often we've not put to death and put off the things of our culture. We just try to put a bunch of extra clothes on top of it, and it doesn't work. More specifics on the how. After asking the Spirit to provide these characteristics before we forgive, that sequence matters. Verse 15 says this, And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body. By the way, that peace doesn't mean the absence of hard things or the absence of tension or conflict. It means in the midst of it you have peace because Jesus is trustworthy. And let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control, control your hearts. Be thankful. That, that word control has a, a judicial foundation. It can also be translated as judge or rule or umpire or arbitrate. Forgiveness and judgment go hand in hand. Forgiveness requires a judge to assess the damage, to assess the consequence, to assess what needs to happen moving forward. Now, here's the thing. Our culture wants to be that judge. Our culture proclaims itself as adequate and trustworthy to be that judge. Often we put ourselves up on a pedestal that we are capable of being that judge. We trust ourselves a lot. But forgiveness is necessary because Jesus is the only trustworthy judge. If we go back to the the working definition of forgiveness that we've been using, it it helps to spell this out. Forgiveness is releasing myself and my offender from the responsibility of bringing justice. It's not, not wanting justice. It's just releasing myself and my offender from the responsibility and instead trusting Jesus to handle it. Verse 16. 
Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this doesn't like just mean like before you pray, say, thank you for this food in Jesus' name. To, to invoke the name of somebody in this culture means to do it uh, with their power. So whatever you do, don't do it on your own behalf, by your own power, because it won't work. Self-help books aren't going to get you there. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is not natural. But in the midst of a culture that is very anti-forgiveness, if forgiveness becomes contagious, people will take notice. I want to read you a story um, about Corey Ten Boom and an experience she, she went through. She tells the, the story as a Dutch Christian, how along with her family members, she had helped many Jews to escape Nazi genocide. Eventually, however, the Gestapo discovered what they were doing and sent Corey and several family members to prison. While her sister, her sister Betsy and her father Casper died in German custody, Corey survived. Here she tells the gripping account of later confronting a Nazi officer in the prison where her sister Betsy died. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt that clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment, I saw the overcoats and the brown hats. The next, a blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form in, ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather then take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard in there. No, he did not forgive me. But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? 
and I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. You see in in this account, forgiveness is not natural. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is not something that can be done on our own power. It's something that has to be done in the name of Jesus. It starts with asking the Spirit to provide the right character and to lead us in that and through it. As we close, I hesitated whether or not I should share that story Because often when we talk about forgiveness, we we talk about the Holocaust and murder and the atrocities of atrocities. And we hear unbelievable, literally divine stories of forgiveness that makes no sense, that, that is beautiful, and it moves us, and it matters. But if forgiveness is to become contagious, we can't just reflect and soak in the, the biggest, the most massive issues where forgiveness is needed Yes, forgiveness is needed there for the offender and the offended. But if forgiveness is going to become contagious, we have to start with the smaller, with a disagreement with a spouse, someone that's disrespected us, grown children who have who've left ungrateful, maybe resentful, the guy that cut you off on the way to church, the person in the grocery store, Like, there's all kinds of opportunities for forgiveness. I can promise you, you will not be spared many, many, many opportunities to practice forgiveness. You'll have plenty. But it has to start today. It has to start, not in the little, not in the insignificant, but yes, in the mundane, the day-to-day, the everyday stuff. Can you imagine a world? I don't mean the globe. A world, our world, our community. Again, our our grocery stores, our banks, our schools, public and private, our places of worship, our streets, our business centers filled with forgiveness. I think my mom was onto something. I think Jesus has a vision for forgiveness to become contagious. Because if it just does that in our tiny little church, I promise you, there is no doubt the impact will be known. 
a beautiful preview of the coming kingship and reign of Jesus will be evident in the midst of a culture filled with animosity. We will look different, and Jesus' name will be known, and the world can actually have hope in the one name where hope can be found, the name of Jesus. May the world around us know his love by the way we forgive. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come before you humbly, incapable, not having the the power, the energy, the strength in ourselves to forgive. But you have called us to that. And so we trust you. We trust you with our emotions, our feelings, with our wounds. We trust you with ourselves, with our family members, our friends, our finances. We look to you. May you provide us with gentleness, heartfelt compassion, patience, kindness. May you lead us to forgive and and show the way. We look to you and we ask you to do the work we desire to desire what you want. May you work and move and have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love that it starts with the little things. Um, Yeah, we can think about the, the big moments, the historical heroes who've done unimaginable things where they've been able to step outside of themselves supernaturally and forgive absolute heinous crimes. Um, And yet uh, the reality is is it starts right here uh, in the small things. Um, The the disrespect while driving, the the bumps in the marriage or forgiving your children, um, learning what it means to step into selflessness and selfless love where we have compassion and kindness for others. And so um, what does that look like? How do we begin to practice that? How do we begin to grow in these areas that um, sometimes can be overlooked? And I love how he talked about, how Landon talked about, we must first put off. We got to take off the stink so that we can put on the new things that Jesus has for us. And so How do we put our minds on what it is that God wants to begin to carve away or to remove so that he can rebuild and address the things that he wants to grow within us? And so here we go. This is the journey of forgiveness, learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus. And it's exactly that. We are practicing every day because there's no way that we can just boom in a moment, have it done. We have to practice. We have to work at, grow being who it is that Jesus created us to be. So thanks again for tuning in. So glad you could join us. If you'd love to learn more about Restoration Church, restorationaz.org. And until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we practice the way of Jesus.